Welcome to Missing Persons Uncovered. I'm Karen Shalev-Green and I carry out research into missing persons at the University of Portsmouth in the UK. In this podcast, we seek to understand the complexities of a global issue. Every year, hundreds of thousands of people go missing worldwide. I'm Caroline Humer, a child protection expert, and across this series, Karen and I are talking to professionals to share insights into how we can all be more aware and take action to protect vulnerable people in our communities and families from going missing. In this episode, Caroline talks to Kevin Metcalf, the founder of the US-based National Child Protection Task Force. They discuss what open source intelligence is and how it is used for identifying online predators as well as missing people. The digital world has a wealth of information that can help in protecting the most vulnerable and can teach us how to protect yourself. At a personal level, use a password manager. You should only know one password and that's the password to get into your password manager. So my background goes back to about 1988 where I went through basic training in the army. Since then, I've worked in one uniform or another, mainly in state, local, and federal law enforcement. A lot of work on the street, just getting to know people, getting to know patrol, getting to know all of that. And that was one of the, the more, I guess, interesting and fun times of my life. It's, it's a whole different spectrum of behavioral understanding when you're working the streets and you see really the underside, the backside of things. I primarily worked in counterterrorism on the federal side, and I, I left federal law enforcement back in 2007 as a only parent. Had my girls by myself since they were two and five, and now they're out of, out of high school, college. Being a single parent gave me another perspective. I got to see more, and my kids were very open with me, had a lot of discussions, so they would actually give me a lot of intel through these years. I left federal law enforcement with the intent of going back to the U.S. Attorney's Office where I had some connections and my girls were finally settled. So I just stayed where I was at and took a state prosecuting job. And I've been doing that for about 12 years. I'm still on as a deputy prosecuting attorney with Washington County, Arkansas. I still work very closely with them. And my focus was prosecuting cases involving technology. That really opened my eyes to how vulnerable we are as a society. And then when you look at our elderly or our children, those are two extreme vulnerable populations. So children became very, very important to me during this. I saw how vulnerable they were and how they could be manipulated even easier on using technology because parents, they can't see what's going on. They don't know what's going on. It's, it's kind of this hidden thing. And I prosecuted a few cases, including one where this guy got, I, I want to say 540 years, but he was looking for mothers who had access to children who were like-minded or were wanting to share those kids. So that really kind of lit a fire in me to, to getting out here working these cases involving children. And it was the, the putting things together. When you become the prosecutor prosecuting these cases, and it's your job to lay that foundation and explain how the technology fits together with the DNA evidence, with the fingerprints, with all this other stuff, that really clicked with me. So I, I started going back into these investigations and helping out, and we started recovering these kids that were taken by online sexual predators. That led me to kind of blew up on me a few years ago. I was asked to speak at these national conferences, and every time I did, I would have people saying, if you need any help, let me know. So I would reach out to them for different skill sets, and they would help me recover a kid or arrest a predator or a trafficker, and they were hooked. And pretty soon, this network started forming of what we have now, and it became the National Child Protection Task Force. We have 
law enforcement here in the U.S., we also have international. I teach for Interpol, for CPOL, Europol, and the learning here. There's a quote by Abraham Lincoln, give me six hours to chop down a tree, I'll spend four hours sharpening my axe. The way that we sharpen our axe on technology is we jump into terrorism cases, property crimes, drug crimes, doesn't matter. We work a ton of homicides. So it doesn't matter what we do, but when you get into working with technology with the DEA and marshals and all these other people, see how they're doing it. Then you're working through Interpol with these international agencies to see how they do it. And you pull all these lessons together. That's essentially what we're doing with the National Child Protection Task Force. We are looking at investigative tradecraft. That's amazing career level that you've done and getting into this space. I think anybody that we've interviewed at our guests all have that same passion that you have once they started working one of these cases. It's like, we need to do more. There's more that we can do. We need to collaborate. We use all the tools that are available. And I think that's sort of the difficulty sometimes when talking to the police officers, they don't know what tools are available. So having your task force is there, that's great. But then also, I think in general, what we don't realize is how much information is out there that's accessible for anybody. One of the things that have come up quite a bit in conversations is that there's open source intelligence. And I wonder if there is an actual definition around that, or if it's just more something that's grown gradually. So open source intelligence, that word has become quite obscure over the years. Let's go back before the internet. There was open source intelligence way back decades ago. Newspapers, magazines, anything that was written up and made public. You could go and pull newspaper articles on different things and have that. That's open source. I can go get that. The idea is publicly available information that's out there that you don't have a paywall for, to put into modern terms. So open source is anything that you could go right now, you could log into Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever. And if somebody doesn't have their privacy settings at an appropriate level, let's say, if they're just open, anybody can go look at all their stuff. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like having your house where you just leave the front door open and you got a whole bunch of glass windows and all the curtains are open. It's kind of like that. You can see everything, everything that's going on in there. There's that. And then you have different privacy levels. So once you establish that privacy setting, it's no longer open source. That's stuff that that person wants to keep hidden. Now, there are a lot of things we expose to the world that become open source that we never intended to. But purely speaking, open source intelligence is just something that you can access that you shouldn't have to pay for. But that is requiring more and more skill as time goes on to find where it's at. It has grown gradually with the internet in a way, because the more information there is on the internet, the more we discuss what is open source or free and what is paid. And that changes over time as well, depending on the service that you're using. Your analogy, what you said about the house actually makes a lot of sense that you find a lot of information. When we go back to missing person cases, what kind of information are we actually looking for to give to law enforcement or to, to find that missing person? It, you're looking at a needle in a haystack, really, when you're lo- opening up the internet. That's being the analogy of a house. Where do you start looking? So the National Child Protection Task Force, one of the things that we decided to specialize or that we did specialize in and we still do is missing persons. It was primarily missing children, but we, we help out mm-hmm. on anything. That is, I think, one of the most difficult investigations to grasp, especially if there's no note saying, I'm leaving, I'm going away, don't look for me. 
If you're an adult, that creates a whole different thing. But if you're a kid, it doesn't matter. We're going to go look for you. Where do you start? That is the question of all times. Let's look at the, the runaway loophole. What we know is that predators are grooming children. They're developing this illusion of trust. They are building this connection. They're looking for that gap between parent and child. Sometimes these children have eating disorders or they'll have depression, anxiety. There's something there. In one case, this girl felt like her parents and college counselor weren't listening to her. And I saw this in the chats and I saw that was it. This is the end this person needs. Oh, your parents aren't listening. I'll listen. Let's talk about what you want to talk about. And this illusion of trust develops. The next step is isolation from friends, from family, isolation from everybody. And then the last step is, well, why don't you come stay with me for a week? Just stay with us. And you can come here. Don't worry about anything. But you need to make sure your parents know you're running away. Leave a note. What that step does then is removes law enforcement from the equation. Nobody is looking for that child. And we have labels that we use. Uh, I'll just throw this out there. One of the most horrible ones I hear a lot of is throwaway kids, often being referred to with foster care or reservation kids. We have been pushing, and I still think kids are either missing or they're not. You have two choices. Either they're under the control and supervision of a responsible, caring adult, or they're not. That's it, period. So when we have that, that step where law enforcement is removed, then you've got a child out here on the streets with no resources, no ability to take care of themselves, and they're at the mercy of whoever will pull them in. And mm -hmm. there are plenty of people who will do that. How do we bridge that gap between this child was here at this home, now they're a runaway that nobody's looking for, how do we find them? Well, the open source that you referred to, that where do you look? Sometimes we find evidence of these, these kids, and this is one of the things, one of our projects that we were doing is once we finish a case, we would take the bad guys, the predators, the trappers, their recruiters, the bottoms, the the whole network they're using, I would yeah. get as much information I could get, phone numbers, emails, usernames, you know, social media handles, whatever. And we would take that information and go back and say, where were these people active on the internet? We would search subreddits, Discord channels, you name it. And then what we would start finding is that these people were active in homework sites. Some of these recruiters, they're helping kids with homework and they're pretty good at it. You know, they're not just out here throwing crap with it. When they're, they're actually working in languages and literature and things, and they're helping kids. And that's a trust-developing mechanism there. They're also in eating disorder sites. We found them in there. We found them anywhere kids are going to be congregating and they're going to be vulnerable. For law enforcement, that's tough. How, how do you go out and find this stuff? It's a needle in a haystack. It is a needle in a haystack. So how does the National Child Protection Task Force get involved with parents? How do they get in touch with you or is it more that law enforcement comes to you on behalf of the parents? Well, that, that depends on our prior interactions with them. Usually we'll, we'll get referred and there's a lot of skepticism. Most mm -hmm. of the time law enforcement is thinking, well, we're already doing that. We already got a guy that does that. And the truth of the matter is they don't. You can't have somebody who does what a team, you can't expect one guy in a department to keep up with technology and to keep up with investigative tradecraft and methodologies. That's just not fair. We have investigators, both domestic and international. We have technology professionals that we pull in. We've got people who specialize in, in plant species. We've got people who specialize in, in whatever the case needs. We pull that team together. So with law enforcement, we require that a law enforcement agency with jurisdiction over that case is involved. The reason for that, a few years ago, we were asked to help on a runaway. We started digging into that and looking at it. And luckily, I had a conversation with this company. And they said, well, you know, I'm looking at these conversations. This 
teenager who's a runaway is communicating with her aunt and they're communicating with law enforcement over here. It looks like the father was abusing her. The father was the one who contacted us, said, hey, my daughter's missing. I need help. You have to be aware of the dangers. You can't just go out and recover some kid and hand, hand them over to the parent because the parent may be the very ones they're running from because they're being abused at home. This is such a complex mess that you have to be aware of all these little nuances and all the danger spots. One thing that we've said in a previous episode is that it's really an individual thing because every every person that goes missing is an individual. So every case makes it different because you have to learn yes. and get to know that individual that's that's right. missing before you even understand why they're missing. And that's why labels don't help because we start blaming the person that goes missing yes. versus the circumstances around it. That's sort of the tough part. That's where the intelligence gathering that you're doing is really helpful. And that then provides sort of an insight into that person's circumstances. You're essentially looking for chats, for posts that are out there from either the person that's missing or then the person that they've been chatting with. If that's right. a chat, is there any other information that you're looking for in the past when working exploitation cases, we just throw things into Google, see what comes up of what other profiles they may have, or is there a phone number associated with the right. profile or anything like that? But this becomes more complex. Each case is an individual we're looking at. One case where this teenage girl was missing, her father was the head of an IT department at a college, and so she was very technically savvy. We actually had to go to her school and start digging into a couple of levels and actually then started finding some of the connected devices. So you have to understand the missing person and you mentioned exploitation. The three things that we work in primarily, exploitation, which as you know, but for people listening, exploitation, just to oversimplify it, this is where children are raped and sexually abused and these videos and images are captured and that becomes pretty much a commodity in and of itself. It's traded actively on dark websites primarily. You've got human trafficking where these extremely vulnerable people are sold day after day after day. You keep hearing the, the comparison with selling drugs, sell a drug once, sell a person many times. It's very true. Billion dollar industry. The third one that we really are prioritizing right now is rape by proxy. I think the French came up with that. I really like the term. Where primarily the top three consumers, US, UK, and Australia, men, on an encrypted video chat like this, let's say, and I'll say, I'll give you, you have access to kids. You're living in horrible poverty. You can't pay anything or feed yourself. I'll give you 10 bucks if you'll do this to that kid while I watch. And that's extremely hard because there's there's no leftover evidence or there's no evidence remaining. It's all conducted on this end-to-end encrypted live stream video. And But that kind of ties into some of the sex tourism that we're also looking into. And sextortion has become a huge, huge thing pretty much everywhere. But we've, we've worked several cases here that resulted in the death of a child by suicide because of sextortion. Yeah. Sextortion as a crime has exploded over the last year, where anyone can be targeted. Kevin explains how open source intelligence is being used to find personal information about someone online and how it leads to sextortion. One of the, the things that I see a lot of 
that is being exploited is just the general lack of operational security by the average person, password hygiene. So for sextortion, for example, one I see a lot of is, and it doesn't necessarily have to be an ex-boyfriend. Okay, for example, New York State, I worked with the New York State police, where we did, they had run dry on a teenager who had killed herself right before her graduation. She was being extorted with images of herself that they had obtained from her accounts. And we tracked these two people to Pakistan. It's a numbers game. And what we see, and I think it would be the most helpful to your listeners. So rhetorical question for your listeners right now. How many of you reuse a password? How many of you know a password you use and you use it on your social media accounts? You use it on Google, you use it on something else. Let's say I'm just looking around on the web. I see somebody attractive. I look and I say, oh, who is this? I find social media. I find out what state you live. I start looking. I find your email. From that, I can probably find your passwords. If your password hygiene is low, another rhetorical question, how many of you have been involved in a data breach? Should be everybody listening to this. So all I have to do is get your login credentials, your email and your password, and I'll try various ones. Why do you think we have these CAPTCHAs, I'm human, on here? It's because we're running scripts, trying to log into everything. These attacks are going on. So what they'll do is they'll get into your Snapchat, they'll get into your Instagram, they'll get into your Google account, they'll start looking through your photos, through your connections, through anything else that will lead them to something with that gold mine of images. This happened to celebrities. This hacking occurs because we're lazy and we're reusing passwords and the criminals are using open source intelligence against us. So they find an attractive woman, attractive girl, and they go in and get your images. Next thing you know, I'm sending them to you saying, if you don't want your family and your friends, if you don't want this posted all over the internet with your name and address, send me money and send me more images, send me more videos, send me more. And it never stops. You, you can't escape it once that gets started. We also see the same thing with boys. So here's another for the men listening to me. How many of you men, and if you can't see me right now, I'm an old bald guy with a gray beard. <laughs> that have these attractive early 20s women in bikinis that want to friend me. A lot of very naive young men with low self-esteem will friend these girls, get into these video chats, will perform for them. And then next thing they know, this is this extortion thing. That's where next thing they know, they're receiving a video of this act they just performed and saying, we're going to send this to your parents. We're going to send this to your friends and family and expose you to everybody. Kevin talks further on how exploitation is interlinked with going missing. I worked on this. I think she was in her mid-20s, attractive nurse. I think she had two kids at home. She went out for a jog and just disappeared. In that case, this was a smaller community. There was a guy she had grown up with that she knew had known for a long time who just suddenly had this thought, passed her, went up, turned around, came back, passed her again. They came up and actually hit her with his truck threw her in the back of the truck, went out and raped her and buried her. That all occurred before law enforcement was even aware of what was going on. Through the use of our skills and technology, we were able to identify the guy and then identify where she was buried. But missing persons, I think we need to open the eyes of our community to things like that. How many people are missing that are actually buried in a field out here somewhere because some something bad happened? That We're looking at rape. We're looking at homicide. We're looking at something. That missing per- person is evidence. But we're not thinking of it like that, and we're not doing our due diligence on the front end doing this investigation. 
we're saying, oh, they're missing. They're an adult. They'll come back when they get ready. And we're not looking far enough to determine that, well, their body's right over here in this field. You mentioned a few times the work that you do internationally. And I wonder when it comes to international or non-U.S. missing person cases or different jurisdictions, are there different methods of intelligence gathering or open sources that are available? It's sort of all the same. There are differences. Let's say you're working a human trafficking investigation. If we get into countries like the Caribbean, there are Mm -hmm. brothels where all the people are in a building, multi-story building. You get here to the U.S., it's all spread out. You get into certain other parts of the U.S. and they're operating out of these massage parlors. You kind of have to understand the landscape, but the same collection of skills and understanding of where information resides on the internet and how you can find it, that's kind of Mm. all the same. So Mm. for us, when we're looking at a case, the behavioral aspects for one thing, you know, if we're we're tracking drug dealers, that's going to be network. That's going to be something different than an an exploitation case. We're going to treat it differently and use some different methodologies. But in the big scheme of things, that data is residing somewhere on the internet and you got to know how to go about finding it. And then what you do once you find it. But for us, the big thing internationally with missing persons, especially when it gets to the point of we think foul play is involved or we think that they've only got a few more hours left, then you start getting into this emergency. That's when we come in with you need to do legal process. So we help with search warrants as well. We also have a team of active duty prosecutors that are part of the NCPTF. We also go to places internationally and train prosecutors. We actually go from Jury selection through closing argument with it. Anyway, so the international, a lot of them, because of the MLAT process, the Mutual Legal Aid Treaty, if you're outside the U.S. and you need data from Facebook and you request it, you're probably looking at a year before you're going to get that. That's not going to be much help. So they're not used to working with this. However, if somebody's life is in danger, they can then go to Facebook and say, we need this, it's an emergency, we need this. But they're not familiar with it because it's just kind of rare for them to get that. That's one of the things where we'll say, We'll go in and do an open source survey of this missing person and their connections, who they've been talking to. You know, we want to do a face-to-face or this mm-hmm. video meeting with law enforcement. We need to know who is this person? What do they do? What are their hobbies? They go to school. They what do they what do they do with their life? Who do they communicate with on a regular basis? And we start looking at them, their family. We start trying to get this framework of social media engagement or whatever it may be. And then we come back and say, all right, you need a geofence search warrant. You need Snapchat. You need Facebook. You need to go to these companies and you need to ask for this stuff under this emergency exemption. That's where I think where we have really been able to help more. That That's, again, a part of the puzzle pieces of putting yes. it all together of the intelligence You've got the open source and you've got the due processes for to get information from the social media platforms or other platforms that, that have information that you need to then actually put the whole puzzle together without realizing what the picture looks like at the end. One of the things that occurs to me, and you've mentioned it previously, that there's a lot happening on the dark web. Can you use these methods on the dark web or is that completely different? It is completely different than searching on what's referred to as a clear web, like the the standard Google searches. The dark web, the main power we have over there are using tools that have scraped essentially, and they're, they're 
data lakes. They're collections of conversations, collections of posts, of discussions, these post discussions. There are these collections of, of data. They're massive. They center around almost everything from fraud to terrorism to exploitation focus to some mix of that. But there are massive, massive amounts of historical collected data from the dark web. And we we have access to just an amazing amount of that, so to speak. If you don't know your way around the dark web, this isn't something where you can just go on there and start searching. It's not the same as, as doing a standard Google, even an advanced Google search. You've really got to have people who specialize in that dark web activity who really know where to go, what to look for, what questions to ask, and all of that in order mm-hmm. to get that data. That's really good to know. I think one of the things that is always interesting and that we need to do is more of information sharing. One of the reasons why Karen and I are doing this podcast is to get information out to the public. Information sharing, knowledge sharing of what is missing persons, how it can impact every person. But it's also then within the community of law enforcement and the police of sharing those expertise that you have as part of the task force, as an individual, from your experiences, what are you seeing the challenges right now within that community of sharing information, sharing the expertise? Because I don't think we're we're sharing expertise as much as we should. We are absolutely not. The, the biggest hurdle we have as law enforcement is ego, I think. That's been a huge obstacle that we've faced. If you're familiar with the, the exploitation side of things, so you know on the dark web, there are collections, there are manuals on mm-hmm. how to groom kids, how to identify a kid, how to prep them, how to do all this stuff. There are also anti-profiling manuals of how to avoid prosecution, how to avoid detection, and how to avoid investigators, how to stay ahead of them. So the Mm skill set for doing that now is much lower than it was 10 or 20 years ago. You don't have to have the technical skills like you used to in order to hide from law enforcement. Information sharing, and I alluded to that earlier, bad guys share information freely. Every time you or I are involved in an interview that's made public, they're looking, what do I not know? Yeah. How did they find these people? Or they'll go and pull a search warrant return for law enforcement. They're looking. All of that goes into these manuals. And that's how they stay ahead of us. That's why we'll always be behind. But that's that's how they really beat us. The sharing part, one of the things that, that people come to us for is like, hey, you got this tool. And we've got a little over one and a half million dollars worth of tools at our disposal in one spot. So we have HDs coming. Hey, are you using this tool? What does mm-hmm. it do? How does it work mm-hmm. with other tools? How, which ones are you finding most effective? Because agencies are trying to, to go into their budget and say, I've got a limited budget. What's the most bang for our buck? And that, that's one thing. So sharing that information is key, but also sharing methodologies. And not only that, when you have a case, we're constantly reaching out to new people that I meet, that I know have a skill set. For example, this is one of my guys. He does online poker. We're working a case <laughs> where this predator just happened to use this term. All the rest of us were clueless. But this other guy said, hey, that's an online poker term. He starts going into the online poker communities and looking into that. Pretty soon, he's identified the guy that led to the recovery of a kid. If you have that one guy in your one agency and you never share that case, you never pull people together and say, I got this case. What do you guys think? You're never going to get anywhere. It's the experience and sharing the experience and expertise and the knowledge, because that's where we're going to strengthen the response to protecting kids and vulnerable people in general. That's really, really important that we start 
talking about this more and more without giving trade secrets away, of course, to sort of go back a little bit. One of the things we'd like to end with is what is it that our listeners should be aware of when it comes to open source, when it comes to protecting their loved ones? Boy, that's a loaded question. That's really hard. I would say, listen to your, listen to kids, any kids that are in, in your life, make sure that your children if they don't feel like they can talk to you, I'm talking to parents, if they don't feel like they have somebody to talk to in their immediate surroundings about sex and things like that, or somebody's making them feel uncomfortable, make sure there's a very trusted aunt or some family member. And I say that with caution, but make sure there's somebody that they can go to that when they start feeling uncomfortable, when something's not right, because a lot of parents have this knee jerk reaction of the kids come to them, they just snatch the phone away. We got to develop trust. You've got to develop that communication with the child. I think the communication and the trust is really how we're going to protect our children. And it's got to come from the families. The second thing I'll leave you with is operational security at a personal <laughs> level. Use a password manager. You should only know one password, and that's the password to get into your password manager. If you're going to store your passwords online, like in, in Chrome or something like that, set up a unique email that's not used anywhere else and a unique password that's not used anywhere else. Write those things down, stick them in your wallet if you have to, but don't reuse that. Another thing are security questions. If you're using security questions, do not answer them honestly. I can probably go into OSINT somehow into your life and figure out what the answers to some of these security questions are. Mm -hmm. And I think that would prevent a lot of fraud and a lot of the things that we see at a very high level, actually. It's a little scary to know that there's so much information easily accessible if you're looking yes. for it. And I think that's really what this conversation is about, is being aware that any information that is written down on, especially virtually on the computer, is accessible to somebody else. I do think that, you know, the missing kids, when you talk about these investigations, I think there, there's a Big difference in what we see of uh, we got a suspect in a homicide. And if you didn't have that one piece of information, that would be a missing person case. So we, we see that a lot. And I think what you're doing, bringing a, a lot of awareness to this, get people thinking. And there's information out there that they see, that they know, that they don't know is important. And I think you getting this information out is, is going to be vital to triggering that understanding and that, that ability to identify this information and then to transfer that to law enforcement investigators to do their job better. Kevin, I really appreciate you being on today and, and having this difficult but necessary conversation with us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Missing Persons Uncovered. And thank you, Kevin, for sharing the challenges and opportunities open source intelligence can bring to finding missing persons. If you'd like to find out more about our work and any resources we mention in the show, you can go to missingpersonsuncovered.com. And if you have any questions you would like us to answer or thoughts on topics you would like us to discuss, please contact us also through our website. If you'd like specific information or need help, please reach out to your local police department or national charity. If you are enjoying this podcast and discussion, please help support us by buying us a coffee through missingpersonsuncovered.com. I'm Caroline Humer. And I'm Karen Shalev Green. Thanks for listening. Join us next time when we will talk about how closely missing persons is connected to exploitation and the need for comprehensive framework to protect the most vulnerable.